standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, which we'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 8. I also mentioned to you that you do have uh, study notes that you can follow along with for the sermon this morning if you'd like. I like to refer to them as um, a to-go bag, that you can take it with you and uh, maybe chew on some of the leftovers uh, later uh, today or in the week. We come to our continued exposition of the Gospel of St. Mark this morning to verses 10 uh, down through verse 16. It's a larger section that actually continues on, but we'll only cover a portion of it this morning. So we begin in verse 10. Immediately got into the boat, Jesus and his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Sorry, took me a moment. (laughs) Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Now Jesus spoke to his disciples, commanding their attention, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven or the yeast of Herod. But the disciples thought he was scolding them because they didn't pack enough bread. I mean, literally, they were talking about bread. And they thought Jesus was saying something like, well, don't buy bread from the Pharisee's baker. Or don't buy bread from Herod's bakery. They literally thought he was talking about bread. Now, This is something very important that I want to press on from the scriptures this morning, and that is a forced literalism of all scripture is linguistically unnatural and theologically misleading. A shocking example is, I'm sure you've heard before, Jesus teaching that if your eye offends you, pull it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, how would you explain this teaching of Jesus, especially in light of the biblical law code in the Old Testament that says God prohibits self-mutilation, the cutting of the flesh and the like. Now, even though we don't live under the Old Covenant law, we recognize moral principles in all the Word of God and moral principles in uh, the law of God. And we further know that Jesus didn't come to destroy or to break the law of God. He came to fulfill it. So how are we supposed to make any sense out of this seeming contradiction that Jesus says if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And you know, one of the thoughts I had about that? Hmm, that's really problematic because I still have one eye and I still have one hand. Jesus isn't talking in literal terms about mutilating yourself. He's using a well-known teaching device in in literature and in language, and that is exaggeration. And by a natural use of language... We pick up on, no, Jesus is speaking in an exaggerated way. Or when Jesus says, beware, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees or the yeast of Herod, we understand he's using a literary device called a metaphor where he's saying their teaching 
is like unseen yeast that goes through the dough. And so, again, we must give ourselves to the right understanding of Scripture and not press for some kind of forced literalism that distorts and twists and deforms what Scripture teaches. One of the most useful lessons for understanding the Bible is to recognize the use of different languages. We'll have some examples of that this morning. Hebrew and Greek, for example. Literary styles and types, which we'll also have examples of. And starting with the methodology that Scripture interprets Scripture so that categories of biblical usage are identified and clarified for general meaning. The meaning of most Scripture can be intellectually explained, but the believing of Scripture revelation for salvation must be received by a supernatural, God-given faith. I cannot overemphasize that. I mean, that's why I am standing before you this morning. I testify to you that I've been called by God to rightly divide the word of truth and to preach and represent to you the word of God in Christ. And I'm not speaking on my own authority. I'm not here to wow you with intellectual study and stimulating uh, challenges to your mind. I'm here to clarify and explain, thus says the Lord. This is what God says. And the meaning of most scripture can be intellectually explained. But the believing of Scripture revelation for salvation must be received by a supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit and a God-given faith. I recently saw a TED Talks, uh, if you're familiar with those. And this was a fellow who was giving a, um, a new talk about David and Goliath. Uh, this fellow said he had grown up hearing the story of David and Goliath from his childhood and that he had always understood David and Goliath as being a story of the underdog. And that it's used in popular nomenclature that way as a story of the underdog. The underdog overcomes the obstacle. You know, the shepherd boy kills the giant. And even children's stories and uh, cartoons and stuff have been demonstrated. I guess movies have been made about it and so forth. But he said, looking more closely at that scripture, he had a, a new and what he thought was a better understanding. And he started out with saying that where it took place, there was a location, historical location, where it took place. And he uh, uh, presented that as factual. It took place here in this land. I mean, we can still document where that is today, the valley where it took place today. He went on then to talk about uh, the skill of the um, uh, one who uses the sling. He gave examples from ancient battle descriptions of how accomplished and how skilled uh, slingers were before the times of even archers. And he talked about the composite rock that was in that valley and how um, dense it was and the uh, projected force of a sling equaling that of about a forty-five caliber slug out of a pistol. And he talked about the accuracy that had been documented of those who used slings. And, and in this particular story of how David had said that he had killed the bear, he had dispatched the lion that had threatened his father's sheep, and he went on to make the application that if we really understand the, the, the natural order of things, a bear and a sheep, a, a man, even a giant man, is really not a match for a bear or a sheep. I, I've, I've told several people this. I saw a picture, a video that it just um, really tickled me. There were these three he-men, three strong guys, muscle-bound. They were holding on to a rope, and they were in a tug of war, and they were pulling, and they were not budging. 
that rope. And so you think, well, man, it must be tied to a truck. or it must be. And so the, the video pans through a chain link fence. And on the other side of the chain link fence is a lioness with the rope in her mouth just sitting on her haunches. And the caption was, you are not the top of the food chain. And so a lion and a bear compared to a man, even a giant man. And so basically this fellow was saying, it was really no contest. He went on then to give us some description of Goliath from the biblical text. And he equated that to medical research that would now tell us that it may be probable that Goliath was suffering from a pituitary gland disorder that caused increased and rapid growth. And along with that came certain side effects such as lack of agility, and mobility, I mean really big, but not able to move fast, and uh, a sight, limited sight. And so when he describes David coming down to him like a dog with sticks, that really that's a description that he couldn't see him too well. And so it was really kind of an unfair fight. And though he was decked out in armor, with the accuracy of the sling, with the density and speed of that projectile, David was able to aim for his forehead, that vulnerable spot that dispatched him with one stone. So far, so good. And then comes the application. As he began to tell this story and say, now I've come to understand there's more to this story, and that is you need to look for the weaknesses in your giants. You need to to see that your giants have many weaknesses and foibles, and if you are smart enough, and if you are careful enough, and if you look closely enough, and if you research enough, you can see that those those giants aren't so scary after all. And he bowed, and everybody clapped. I mean, isn't that a better story than the underdog story of David and Goliath and the songs that we used to sing? I mean, that's a better story, isn't it? That's a better application. That's a, that's a good preaching of application. But the problem with that is it's moralism. The problem with that is it stops short. And besides, it is also selective of what Scripture says. It's fine that you give the historical location. It's fine that you talk about the ability of the, of the skilled slingers and that you talk about you know, David and Goliath and even research and say maybe Goliath represented this particular medical condition. All of that's very interesting. I don't even have a problem with it. I think it's very interesting. But it selectively treats scripture that says in the chapter before, David had been ordained by the prophet Samuel and had been anointed by him as king of Israel to take Saul's place. And that David came in the providence of God to the battle where the armies were on each side of the valley. And David heard the blasphemes of the giant Philistine cursing God and calling them out and taunting the armies of God. And David said it was in the name of the Lord and for the honor of the Lord. And if you understand the scope of Scripture and the things that I'm talking about and that I pointed out this morning regarding biblical symbolism and how it ties together in the progressive revelation of God, do you understand that the uh, story of David and Goliath is a gospel story? It's a story of God, good news of salvation. Now when I say gospel, that's what I mean. God's good news of salvation. Not the gospel of self-help, not the gospel of deer hunting, not the gospel of the golf course, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of salvation God's way. And here is what we have from the gospel viewpoint of David and Goliath. The anointed one of God who comes, who is set and identified as God's king, even though as a child or a boy. 
defeats the devil, the arch enemy of God and his people. Even the Goliath wearing armored snake or dragon scales, like the brass armor had scales. It was like a dragon or snake scales. So here's the greater picture. Here's the bigger picture. It is a wonderful, powerful story. But it is meaningless unless it is revealing to us the greater truth that Jesus came like us and that Jesus defeated our arch enemy, the enemy of God's people, the old dragon, the snake, the devil. And you know what that pushes upon you and me? Well, it says we've got to believe in the Bible that it's accurate. We've got to believe in the Bible that it reveals God's way of salvation. And we have to believe the things that God reveals about the need of salvation and the fact that there is a real devil. I can't make you believe those things. I can tell you it's what the Bible teaches. It's what the Bible says. I believe it. Not because of intellectualism. I study. I mean, I went to university and have degrees and all to be able to... um, study in original languages and to trace out and to to go through the scriptures and to connect these things, but that's not why I believe it. I believe it because the Holy Spirit has convinced me by a God-given faith that is not of myself, that is a gift from God, that this is the Word of God. And I say this, I say this with all the conviction I can muster. I believe everything in the Bible, even the stuff I don't understand. But, But Abraham said that before me. Will not the God of all creation do what's right? Will not the God of all the universe do what's right? That's what I believe. I believe God's self-revelation. More than creator, he's also savior. His way of salvation and the good news in the gospel that is recorded for us in the scripture that he has given and kept and preserved. And I read it and I believe it. And I do want to understand it more and more. Well, we come to chapter 8 in our continuing exposition of the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ. And we have in this chapter the Gospel paradox presented to us. It seems that the Gospel is a paradox in this sin-fallen world. It seems it's full of contradiction. But it's not. Because the Gospel demands faith in divine providence integral to the salvation of the world. God is active. God provides and God is present in the salvation of the world. The Gospel demands faith in the progressive revelation of the Holy Scriptures, that God puts it all together. This is not an exhaustive book. It's a book that is intentional and it is full and sufficient to reveal God's way of salvation. The gospel demands faith in the predictive prophecy terminating in Christ's new covenant gospel. Everything points to that, forward and back. People get all tied up in and uh, what I call prophecy-mongering today, and completely ignore the gospel. Look, here's just one example for you. The word apocalypse. The apocalypse is coming. Everybody associates that with the end of the world and disasters. Do you know what the word apocalypse means? Revealing. (laughs) The revealing. And the revealing has come. The unrevealing of the Son of God. He has been made known to us. He has been declared to us. Everything points back to him, pointing forward. We want to talk about the end of the world or how it will all come about? This is what I'll tell you, what Scripture says. Jesus will be glorified. I have been, some of you will understand this, um, eschatology 
uh, is the study of last things and people trying to sort out, you know, what does the Bible teach and its predictive prophecy about the last things. And there are several approaches to that. To that. There are some that are called uh, or uh, premillennialists. They believe that there will be a literal uh, earthly kingdom on earth and it has various permutations about how that will happen. Uh, but there will be a literal uh, kingdom on earth uh, according to like a human type kingdom. And then there are those who are all millennialist. And the alpha privative is used to say it's not a literal earthly kingdom like human political, a political, social, economic type of kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And it's within and it works its way out in the people of God who call themselves Christians and who live and who demonstrate what the Christian life is. And they profess that Jesus is their savior. And so all millennialists believe that there is the ever-present kingdom of God. And then there are post-millennialists. And post-millennialists, again, having various uh, applications, believe that there will come a time when the gospel will so dominate and, and demonstrate that there will be a, a, a conversion, whether it happens massively uh, or progressively, but there will be a predominantly Christian witness and presence in the human world. Um, and I don't think those terms are probably adequate. And um, I think there's some overlapping of each one that has its value. And, have, and I don't think any of them have the whole thing all sewn up. And so I have been accused of being a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. It's going to pan out God's way. It's all going to honor Christ. Now, I do have my particular views and interpretations and ideas about these things. But here's what I want to tell you. For me, all predictive prophecy goes back to the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Everything I need to know. And my trying to sort out and understand some of those things since the time of Christ's ascension. I have views about. I have thoughts about them. I try to connect the scriptures about them. But I want to tell you, it all centers on who Jesus Christ is and what I believe about him today and where he is and how he has promised in a wonderful and mysterious way that he is with us, even in our gathered worship, in a way of faith that is revealed in the Bible and that is beyond human ability and human uh, skills, even to explain, but not beyond our confessing and believing in faith. I don't believe that Jesus is in the bread. I don't believe that Jesus is in the cup of juice or wine. I believe those are symbols. Uh, talk about linguistic use and that Jesus identifies for us and says this is what these elements represent. They're beautiful elements. They represent truths. And what they tell us and what Jesus said is I am more real to you than this bread or this cup to your physical senses. And so this is where we're pressed to believe what Scripture reveals. We looked last week at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 8. Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 4,000 plus. Not to be confused with his previous feeding of the 5,000 plus. These are two completely different episodes, just like Jesus healed different people. He healed more than one blind man. He healed more than one sick woman. He raised more than one dead person. He cast out more than one demon. Jesus did repeated wonders. So why would we doubt that he fed a multitude more than once in a miraculous way? The only thing answer for that is unbelief and an attempt to discredit Scripture. But Jesus miraculously fed 4,000 plus people, this time in predominantly Gentile territory, not in Jewish territory. And he further demonstrates God's providence integral to the salvation of the world. 
Now we come this morning to pick up at verse 10. And as I said, this larger section is down through verse 26, but we'll not be able to cover that this morning. But you see that Jesus heals a blind man in this section of chapter 8, but in a peculiar way. He heals a blind man in two stages. He didn't commonly do that, or at least we don't have the details about him doing that. We had him uh, an example of him healing a man who had an impediment in speech and, and uh, uh, who was also uh, unable to hear. And Jesus, in a peculiar way, we were given details about how he healed him. In other times, we're told that he healed people by speaking the word. Or that he put his hand on them. Or there's a variety of different ways. And scripture's telling us that Jesus can't be put in a box. We can't put Jesus in a box. And that Jesus had an intent and purpose in healing this blind man in two stages and recording it in scripture for us. It's another gospel object lesson about the need to understand the progressive revelation of scripture in order to avoid the spread of false teaching. How do I know that? Because Jesus said, beware of the yeast, the spread of the false teaching of the Pharisees and of Herod. And then he gave a demonstration, as we'll come to it in the next few weeks, uh, over the next uh, few messages, where he heals this blind man. And he gives the, the disciples and us an object lesson about how we need to give ourselves to progressive revelation of Scripture, to see the unfolding story, to connect the dots backward and forward, and to see the full picture of what God has revealed. Now you'll note in verse 10, where we read that immediately Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Damantia. And we don't know where this is. I'll be honest with you. Uh, Matthew connects it with uh, uh, Magdala. Neither of these names have come down to us as, as by way of location. We don't really know where they are or where they were. They haven't continued as far as their geographical location. But by context... We know it was somewhere along the Sea of Galilee because they came to it by boat, the scriptures tell us. And that not only that, it was in a predominantly uh, Jewish territory where the Pharisees had an established presence. So it is a, a, a transversing from where he was. He's moving across the Sea of Galilee from where he was around Decapolis. And we know where those, that region was in the, the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And now he comes to a place that we don't have a continued name for, but... We know it was along the coast, and we know it was in predominantly Jewish territory where the Pharisees had an established presence who came out immediately to confront him. So here we have an in-text example of interpreting Scripture according to the context and its primary meaning. Does it bother you that we don't know the historical location of this town? Well, let me give you an example. Looking into some of my uh, family history, I grew up north of Atlanta in an area called Roswell, Alpharetta and that area. Do you know when my ancestors lived there, it was called Old Milton County? There is no Milton County, Old Milton County today. That was a, a, a place that existed. You probably wouldn't even know about it. I wouldn't have known about it until I was reading in my, some of my family history and found out, oh, my family lived in this area, and it was called um, Old Milton County, or called Milton County at that time, and my family was in a, an established church there called Lebanon Baptist Church. Over you know, a number of generations now, that church is still in existence, not in the same location. But am I to doubt because it's not called Milton County today? Well, I'm not sure it even really existed. I don't even know my ancestors existed. Because it's not called the same thing today? Or here's another one. In, in recent days, 
there has been a new uh, incorporation called John's Creek. Now, when I was growing up around this area, there was not a John's Creek other than one that we caught crawdads in. But there was not a community identified and you know listed as a municipality, having its own uh, government stuff known as John's Creek. And here's another one for you, history buffs. Marthersville. Anybody remember Marthersville? It's not on a map. You won't find Marthersville on a map today. But guess what you'll find in its place? Atlanta. Did Marthaville never exist? Yeah, it existed. Been renamed and <laughs> taken in a whole lot more than it used to. So why would we doubt? Don't listen to the doubters. Say, because we can't give the geographical location for this place where Jesus is that it didn't exist. That's just foolishness. We don't do that with other things. So that's just one example. So this morning I want us to finish up by looking at verses 11 through 13. Here we read of Jesus' spirit emotional growl. And I know your scriptures probably say that he had a deep sigh or he sighed deeply within himself. But it's a little better to express that this was a, a, a sigh or an expression of disapproval. And, and he gives uh, expression of that in his words, which we'll talk about. But Jesus' spirit emotional growl was given verbal expression over the Pharisees' disputes because they were trying to bait and entrap him with temptation to perform a heavenly sign. And this should be interpreted by the words and story in the wider scope of Scripture. So let me give you some uh, explanation about that. Look at verse 11. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. And that dispute is a strong word in a, in a caustic or challenging way. Seeking from him a sign from heaven. Testing him. So they're not genuine. They're not really trying to find out the truth. They're not uh, asking Jesus to represent and be clear about what he's teaching. They have an ulterior motive. And they're asking a sign from heaven. They're saying to Jesus, make it rain wine. Or turn noonday into midnight. Do something fabulous. Do something that, that just is unmistakable. We're telling you to perform a miracle like this and show that you have power in heaven. And so let's think about it for a moment. The recorded signs that we've already had witness of Jesus doing in the previous chapters, just of Mark, for example. These wondrous signs that Jesus claimed identity by. They, by a forced and unnatural literalism, they could be called earthbound. All these things that Jesus did. They're saying, show us a sign from heaven, an astronomical sign, because all these things that you've done have just been earthbound displays. And they seem to be referencing some of the astronomical signs of the Old Testament. For example, God's signs of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and leading the Hebrew children out of Exodus. And then that God gave them manna, from heaven, manna bread from heaven. That was how it was described. Is that it showed up in the morning and they went out to collect it and they described it as bread from heaven. Even those who were dealing with Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000 uh, identified that. And said, we want this bread from heaven like our fathers ate in the wilderness. We want this bread from heaven. And then we have the record of the sun standing still in Joshua's battle. And also in Samuel of God thundering rage against the Pharisees, I'm, I'm sorry, against the Philistines in response to um, Samuel's intercession. So these were considered what would be called astronomical signs. They were signs that had some effect and represented that they were in the heavens. But these ignore many other signs that would, in the very same context, 
according to the Pharisees' reasoning, be considered earthbound. Think about this for a moment. Jesus brings a marvelous uh, deliverance of the Hebrew children out of Exodus, and they want to champion that with the the, uh, astronomical sign in the heavens of the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. But by that same forced literalism, the plagues in Egypt would be considered earthbound. Because the plagues in Egypt Egypt dealt with earthbound things. They dealt with the the false gods of the Egyptians. Or what about the parting of the Red Sea? Do you know that God says a strong east and a strong east wind to be a part of parting the Red Sea? I still think it was miraculous, but God chose to use uh, uh, as a part of that an east wind. So according to the Pharisees uh, forced literalism, that would be considered an earthbound sign. Or when the people got tired of the bread from heaven. Oh, give us the bread from heaven. We want the bread from heaven. We're tired of the bread from heaven. We're tired of the, earth, of the, uh, of the heavenly sign. So what did God send them in the evening? He sent a flight of quail. That would be an earthbound sign. The quail flew in and got caught in their, nap, in their nets and stuff. And so they had not only bread from heaven, they also had uh, quail. And being a southern boy, I'm sure they had gravy to go with it. Well, gravy and manna biscuits. Sounds pretty yummy to me. But you see, it was an earthbound sign. So in the very same context, here they're complaining and saying, oh, Jesus, show us an an astronomical sign. That's the only ones we'll believe. But the very references to these astronomical signs in context of the scope of Scripture are connected with what they would force by their interpretation to be earthbound signs. And so there's examples of that, and it shows that it's an unsafe way of trying to deal with Scripture. Jesus Jesus clearly announced that his powers and works were signs of his heavenly origin and his divine equality, authorizing him to forgive sins on earth. That's what kicked this whole thing off, if you remember back in Mark chapter 2, that Jesus claimed authority on earth to forgive sins, and this is what the Pharisees rightly deduced from that. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to this man, this paralyzed man, take up your bed and walk. Not only did I heal him, I also gave him authority to take up his bed on the Sabbath day and to walk in violation of your false teachings and your uh, encumbrances upon the true teaching of the law of God. I say, take up your bed and walk. You're not violating the Sabbath. You have been healed to the glory of God, testified to the glory of God, Your sins have been forgiven you. You see, that's where it all comes down to. Jesus also proved that his authority and power were not earthbound. In our reading of the book of Mark, remember what we've come across? That Jesus has demonstrated his reach beyond into the otherworldly realm of the demons and of death. So the demons are not earthbound. Do you believe they exist? I do. The Bible says so. It says Jesus cast them out. Jesus reached beyond this world, this earthbound world. He reached beyond into the other world, and he had command over the demons. He cast them out, banished them repeatedly. They repeatedly testifying that he's the Son of God. Leading James to say, you have faith, you do well. The devils believe that Jesus is God. They believe and tremble. And yet that's not saving faith. Something for us to think about. And so, Jesus raises the dead. You want to talk about reaching beyond the earthbound? 
(laughs) Repeatedly, we have examples and testimony of Jesus raising the dead, reaching into the netherworld, reaching into the other world, reaching past this world and the earthbound limitations that you and I have, and Jesus raises the dead. You want to talk about who he is? You want to talk about astronomical signs? I tell you, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of righteousness that has arisen. He has power over this world, the other world, and death itself. Over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And not only that, in the progressive revelation of God, guess what's coming? Do you know the story? Do you know the story about Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension? Do you know in that story that there are astronomical signs? Consider the scope of the progressive revelation of God. Beloved, you have the benefit and the blessing of the whole story. Verse 12. Jesus sighed deeply or groaned deeply, growled deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Now, Jesus uses language here intentionally employing a rhetorical question, a linguistic formula oath, and a grammatical function conditional clause answering the Pharisees' forced literalism. Now, I don't want to bore you with this, but what I want to illustrate by this is that the Bible uses language. And language in the way that we can understand it. You get what a rhetorical question is intellectually. You know what a a formula is of an oath and the grammatical function of a conditional clause. We, We use it all the time in common language. And so Jesus employs in verse 12a that rhetorical question. Why does this generation seek a sign? Jesus isn't asking us a question for a test. He's not asking an essay question here. Jesus is using a rhetorical question. He growls disapproval by this rhetorical question in order to prompt the conscience with accountability. I dare you not to respond to a rhetorical question. In conscience, you can't do it. There is a response. It's elicited. There is accountability. You can't unhear a rhetorical question. Both then and now, this literary device serves to unveil the soul of unbelief. Here's my rhetorical question to you. What would it take for you to believe Jesus is the Savior of the world? You can't unhear that. What would it take for you to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? You can only answer that by faith. You either are unbeliever or you're a believer. 12b, Jesus uses the formula of an oath, and he also transliterates from Hebrew the use of language. Amen. It's translated in our uh, Bibles, assuredly or truly. In the Greek text, it's amen. It's not even Greek. You know where it comes from? Hebrew, the Hebrew Old Testament. Jesus is using a transliterated term that you and I use all the time. Now, we use it often in worship. Sometimes when the preacher makes a really good point, people will say amen. Sometimes not. But we punctuate that. We understand it. Now, oftentimes we'll use false oaths, and God warns us about using false oaths. Jesus is here employing a transliterated Hebrew term to punctuate what he's saying by way of warning and threat as an oath. It's a formula of an oath. He punctuates his disapproval of the Pharisees' unbelief and their immoral deceit with a threatening oath. 
Jesus continues as the Lord of glory to punctuate his disapproval of all who speak immorally and deceptively about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not okay to corrupt the gospel. It's not okay because it's clear enough to be revealed. Where is intellectual honesty? If you don't believe Jesus, then just say, I don't believe this Jesus bunk. Why try to deceive, discredit? The things that Scripture says, just say, I don't believe it. That's why Jesus gives us this threatening oath. And that's why the Scriptures say that He growled in His spirit. I liken this to what C.S. Lewis in his analogy of Christ by the lion Aslan says, he's not a tame lion. And he growls with disapproval, this threatening oath. If that's not a Jesus you understand, you need to rethink who Jesus is because he is the Lord of glory. He is the one to whom the Father has committed all judgment. He is not only the Savior, but he will stand rightly in judgment of all. And all must give an account to this Jesus. Do you believe that? See, that's a rhetorical question. Do you believe it? You can't not answer that in your conscience. And then we come to the end of verse 12. No sign shall be given this generation. Now this is a conditional clause in the text. And it expects a negative answer. And we could express this as we commonly do in our own language. You as a child or you as a parent, have you ever heard or said these words? See what happens! If this room's not cleaned up by the time I come back. You just see what happens. If these chores aren't done when I get back from the grocery store. We use it all the time, don't we? And we use it as a threat. Now, whether we follow through with the threat might <laughs> be another issue. But we do. We use it. I know intellectually you understand this conditional clause in what I'm saying. This is what Jesus said. See if it shall be given to this generation a sign by me to continue being insulted by your dishonest games. Jesus isn't saying no signs have been given. Jesus isn't saying that astronomical signs. I already told you there are astronomical signs are going to come in the progressive revelation of God. But you understand how in terms of language, what Jesus is saying can be explained. You just see if I shall give this generation, represented by the unbelief and the deceit and the intentional fraud of the Pharisees, you just see if I will give this generation the sign they're asking for so that they might continue to insult me with their dishonest games. Jesus said, I'm not playing your games. You're not going to goat me into some dog and pony show. I've given you plenty. And here's what I know. God the Father sanctifies my word. If I never performed a sign, it would still be true that I am the Son of God and the only Savior. But you see how God did accommodate. And He did punctuate. And He did reveal. So that we have no excuse. The only excuse for not Confessing and believing that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God, is unbelief. The only, the only answer. We like to complicate things. 
But here God is saying, look, I'm going to make it uncomplicated for you. Believing in the infallible verbal inspiration of Holy Scripture, a part of truthfully preaching and teaching the new covenant gospel, includes grammatical exegesis. I gave you examples this morning of where I went to uh, the language and the uh, grammar of the text. It includes linguistic translation and explanation. I gave you example of, for, for example, the, the word amen or amen is not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word. It was brought over just like we use it in English, and it punctuated an oath, a formula, an oath. I gave you other examples of, of translating that conditional clause so that you can understand the import of that conditional clause was explained. But more important than all of that, I didn't leave it. I took it further to theological interpretation for general meaning. The general meaning is understandable. But the general meaning and the intellectual grasp of explaining a passage of Scripture is not believing unto salvation. So this part of the story is not about prohibiting bread from the bakery of the Pharisees or Herod. Jesus wasn't talking about bread. We'll get to that next week. But this part of the story is about the need to understand the progressive revelation of Scripture in order to avoid the spread of false teaching. And the progressive revelation of Scripture by which we look at this particular passage is telling us that Jesus was in a historical location. Even if we can't name it today, that's no big deal because we have the same examples all around us. That Jesus was speaking analogically about false teaching using the metaphor of yeast that spreads in dough. That the disciples got confused by a forced literalism, thinking about they didn't have bread, but Jesus was talking about what they had just heard in the deceit of the Pharisees trying to rest and turn and twist the word of God, calling for an astronomical sign when there were all manner of signs that they were ignoring and even being inconsistent with what their own references were. And it calls us to account by the rhetorical question as well. A rhetorical question that you cannot unhear, but that you not only must answer in your soul, but beloved, I must tell you this with all love and sincerity, believing the word of God, one day you will give an answer to Jesus himself. That is what scripture teaches You believe it or you don't believe it. But I say to you, don't be unbelieving, but believe who Jesus is. Believe the record of Scripture. And I pray and beg the Holy Spirit to give you the gift of faith that you might believe. That's what this Lord's Supper is a demonstration of. That's why we don't take it individually. This is a part of the body of Christ, the church. That's why Jesus says that to take this Lord's Supper, and as we're taught by the apostles, you're to have identified with Jesus in baptism, Trinitarian baptism, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another biblical formula. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we have identified with Jesus publicly. No, I'm His. I I identify and confess that Jesus is my Savior. You're to to have publicly witnessed to that if you were baptized in covenant as an infant or if you were baptized as an adult. 
But now you profess and say, no, I believe that Jesus is my Savior, and I belong to a church that says Jesus is the Savior. Is my faith perfect? Is my faith complete? Does my faith ever have struggles? Yes, my faith. That's why I need this Lord's Supper. That's why Jesus says this is a means of grace. The Bible teaches us that, that Jesus reveals himself and pr- his promises to us. I'm more real to you by faith. You doubt this is bread? You doubt this is a cup of wine or a cup of juice? Don't doubt that. How silly it would be for me to say, okay, this, you think this is bread, it's really apple. This is really apple. I would be a deceiver if I told you that. It's not apple, it's bread. You, I think you understand what I'm saying. That no, this is what your physical senses, all your physical senses. But do you know when that bread, just as bread, do you know when it really benefits your body? If you were starving and needed a morsel of bread to keep your body alive, you could hold it in your hand and say, that's bread, that's bread. You could break it and hear it break. You could smell it. You could taste it. That's bread, that's bread. And you could die with it in your hand. Because that bread brings nourishment to your body when it passes out of your senses. And the wonder of Digestion, it goes into your body, and pretty soon it goes into your bloodstream, and it carries nourishment to your body. Isn't that amazing? If you don't see the uh, the Creator's hand in that, you're blind. But Jesus is saying, you see, here's a a mystery for you just in your body, but I'm going to tell you a greater mystery. I am more real to you by faith than that bread is to your physical senses. I am more real to you by faith than that cup of juice or wine is to your physical senses. Because that bread is a symbol that I came like you. I came in a real human being, a real human body, soul, and spirit. I was a real human, but I was also more than a real human. I was the incarnate God. Not in the form of a sheep or a goat or a bull or any other angel or anything. No, as a human being like you, the most intimate like you. And that cup, it looks like blood. It looks red. It's not blood. It doesn't change into anything. It's just either wine or juice. But it represents symbolically a greater reality. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. You know what the new covenant is? The fulfillment of the old covenant and the good news of salvation. God's way of salvation that he promised and that he fulfilled and that he will confirm. And so... Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, the promise of God, that my blood was satisfying for your sin's guilt. And you have been forgiven who confess and believe in me. Just like water washes away your dirt from your body, only the Holy Spirit can wash away your sin's guilt because Jesus was the substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent for the guilty, the sinless for the sinful. So Now, does that connect with you by faith? So that's what this Lord's Supper is. And we're told that we're not to harbor sin against others. We are not to resent and to hold on to sins against others, but we're to forgive them as God has forgiven us. And so with that, we come to this Lord's Supper.